Hello and welcome to another episode of the City Centric Podcast. This is a special little mini-series that we're doing all around the Cities for Future Humans conference that took place on Wednesday the 15th of May. Uh, we're doing our best to invite all of the speakers post-event to have a one-to-one conversation with regards to their topics brought up and why they wanted to contribute and why we sought them out for interest in participating. Um, we're made more aware of the risks that climate change possess to many elements about our global ecology. Uh, but there's a lot to understand about how we'll influence day-to-day life in cities and in truth climate change isn't something that will just be affecting a small minority of people in a far land away Uh, there's a lot to understand about how it will change the subtle elements of our day-to-day lives in cities from the quality of our journey in sudden changes in climate conditions affecting our stress levels uh, local displacement as well as the change from a microbiological element of increased temperatures will start to change the increase and differences in everything from moss that's grown to how trees and and, uh, flowers are pollinated. So it's a broad issue and we were delighted to have in a series of young leaders trying to step ahead in this game, look forward and people like the coalface about looking at a future they're trying to protect but also one how they can protect for other people in future cities. So um, this episode I've got Tom Lindsay from 100 Resilient Cities. Uh, They're a great organisation pioneered by the Rockefeller foundation and they're dedicated to helping cities around the world become more resilient to the physical social and economic challenges that are growing as part of the 21st century and they particularly cover things uh, not just shocks like earthquakes fires and floods but also the stresses that weaken the fabric of city on a day-to-day or cyclical basis Uh, so thank you in advance for tom joining us Um, i hope you enjoy this conversation Tom, a big welcome to the City Centric podcast. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for joining us last Wednesday at the conference. Um, for those that weren't there, can you give a little introduction to who you are, um, your journey into 100 Resilient Cities and what you do there? Sure. Well, thanks, Josh. First of all, great to, to be um, with you now and, and last Wednesday as well. I think the conference was a, a great time to hear a lot of interesting um, ideas um, for, for me, um, my name is Tom Lindsay. Uh, I'm the senior manager in the strategy delivery units of 100 Resilient Cities, um, which is a long, lengthy title, but essentially uh, starting with 100 Resilient Cities. Um, we're an organization that works with a network of member cities across the, the world, so many different regions. You probably guessed it's 100 of them. Um, and we work to basically help those cities um, become more resilient to all sorts of societal, economic, environmental challenges that they are increasingly facing in this um, new new era of um, a mixture of of globalization, urbanization, climate change, a a plethora of shocks and stresses that that are really causing headaches for, for all of us. And Cities particularly are becoming more and more powerful actors that actually can do things um, in a more innovative uh, way, often together as well in partnership, um, that national governments sometimes can't be agile enough to uh, cope with. So for me, I I think what I find interesting about that is, again, that this work with cities is, is particularly timely because the cities are these, these new growing actors on the world stage and because these new trends they're facing are happening 
in a way that is is more complex and more uncertain and more rapid than I think we've we've seen really ever. And so the whole new challenges uh, is one thing. And the other thing is actually having a network where cities are learned from each other is is incredibly new and exciting and I think the right way to to go about this. So that's where I'm coming from today. Awesome. So managing, I don't know, it's not just yourself. I know you're a large organization spread across. I think it was four offices and there's uh, globally and there's quite a few of you, but a hundred cities there, there must be a lot of sort of difference between them. And so when you're looking at your frameworks for resilience across the sectors that you mentioned, um, there's obviously got to be some areas where you're seeing greater success. Uh, I don't know if you've got any sort of best practice examples about how cities are adapting for change and uncertainty and perhaps some reasoning as to why other cities might be falling uh, further behind due to other, whether it be sort of financial or policy directed issues. I wonder if you can uh, elaborate a little bit more on kind of the experience about how you're finding success uh, through the uh, Resilient Cities program. Sure. So, I mean, first off, there's there's a heck of a lot of initiatives to to pick from um, because they're all uh, all our cities are are working um, and to make themselves more resilient and that means a whole host of different initiatives everything from um, reforming their urban planning frameworks to more social programs to even smaller more physical uh, projects uh, that's that will help them, again, become more resilient to whatever shock stresses they may come across. Um, one that we're, we're particularly proud of, a flagship project for us, is um, the Paris schoolyards. So Paris um, took the, the lead on creating schoolyards, which could, uh, I guess, become urban oases. Oasises, what's the plural of oasis? Um, and essentially they had multiple benefits by looking at schoolyards across Paris. Um, They were able to re-engineer in some ways the the schoolyards very simply um, by opening them up to to the local neighbourhood and creating a new public space, which in a way always existed there. So without having to demolish anything, they just reused a space that often was in, in the centre of, of neighbourhoods. And they were able to, because imagine a large space in often a very dense neighbourhood of, of Paris, it's one of the densest uh, cities in in the world, was a way to reduce the effects of the urban heat island effect, which is going to be, again, because of climate change, an increasing issue uh, for all our cities. And... Um, and then if you think even of the social impact of creating a new public space and what that does for, for a local neighbourhood, um, it's, it's, it's an incredible, incredibly simple, I'm sure it wasn't uh, <laughs> so simple, on, on, um, but on the face of it, it's something that actually a lot of cities could learn from as well. So we, we think of it as best practice and something that, again, by having a partnership of, of member cities globally, cities can look to Paris and learn from from its everything from its successes to the challenges um, that happened along the way to get there. Now it, it, that, that's an example of I think good good practice and, and impact and um, I, I will say that actually best practice doesn't always come from um, you know what you think is the leading global cities like Paris, New York, London, um, Tokyo even. 
it, it's actually those cities are so far beyond um, when it comes to you know, developing new innovative actions to combat these these growing trends that actually cities that maybe don't have the same resources can't look to them and try and take on lessons learned from them. And, and I, I think that's a mistake that we often make because sometimes the best practices are from cities that, uh, that are in a similar situation mm-hmm. to, to, um, to each other. And, and I think the wonderful thing that, that I've witnessed is that uh, there is no you know, single amazing, most resilient city. Every city has something to learn from others. And, and I think that's, that's a, a kind of humbling thoughts, which, uh, which is great, actually. We don't, you know, although we have cities that will lead and really want to push themselves to become the new most adaptive cities, like Rotterdam, for one, is, is fantastic for, for that and sharing its lessons with, with other cities. Actually, there's always something, some, something of some value that you can learn from, from any single city, I would say, in, in the network. So do you um, think it's oh sorry, I mean I was just gonna ask, do you think it's fair to say then that you couldn't take uh, and compare historic cities with slightly more contemporary cities? So, you know, cities like uh London have been evolving over a millennia, uh, very you know, dramatically built out from the Georgians onward, um, you know, rapidly through the Victorians, developing the first underground network, but not really realizing the the scope of how that city will grow. So it, its tensions could be similar to somewhere like Paris, another classic romantic city um where density has become such an issue and the fight for every square meter is so so precious um you know comparing that to say well look then by default all major classic cities will have the following characteristics and a more sort of contemporary 20th century cities will have these following characteristics is it fair to say that that just doesn't exist yeah i I think um it's uh, and to be able to define it, I'd, I'd love to, to be able to do this, but there is this trade-off of, of what you can learn from, from each other, what are the shared issues and, and um, historical trends, I suppose, like you, you mentioned, that actually you can learn from, and then very quickly what becomes so contextually specific to that particular city that actually you cannot learn everything from each other and actually some things just are too specific to that context that time its physical location the, the people that it's that, that call themselves the, the citizens of that city all these things so it's it's a it's a tricky one to to navigate i think it, you have to take a kind of healthy view on on this and say actually there will be a lot of uh, similar challenges that they um, experience. I mean, think climate change and, and rising sea levels and, and, and rising temperatures as well. But actually, the solutions themselves may be totally different um, on the face of it. Mm. So, I mean, with uh, with regards to climate change in cities, I think, um, you know, whilst we're seeing over the past year, I think, unprecedented public sway towards a more um, realistic attitude uh, at the impact that climate change will start to have. And, you know, you, you can't go too much further than beyond um, uh, David Attenborough, you know, really hammering it home on, uh, you know, his Netflix series, Our Planet, just really 
um, bring into light, you know, it is whatever 60 years of presenting and saying, look, we, we are destroying our habitats. We're, we're not really just destroying ours. We're destroying everything else around us. We've got to make, uh, we've got to make, uh, you know, good progression. And obviously seeing an animal with nice big doughy eyes be sad normally does actually get people's attention. So there, there has been a great sway. Um, but we, we do often look at climate change from a good distance and in particular, and we have done for a number of years um, in sort of, for example, like uh, northern sort of Anglo-American cities where we have generally understood climate change to be something impacted by people living in, you know, whether it be sub-Saharan Africa or coastal regions in the southern hemisphere experiencing typhoons and hurricanes going, oh, that's bad, that's going really bad for them. But in the northern hemisphere, it's a little bit of a sort of a... Um, frog in boiling water situation mm. where we are having things adapt around us at a slightly slower pace but uh, more sort of micro impacts as we go through so um do you, do you think it's fair to to sort of position that that cities in sort of more northern hemisphere haven't really been understanding the great impact that uh, you know climate change in particular will have and what that will mean to sort of future life in cities uh, certainly in sort of economic hubs where if we have dramatic influence on our climates and everything from our uh, you know biological health through to our uh, everything from our stress levels and all those other sort of physiological responses will start to be hugely impacted the idea of protecting these great bastions of economy becomes really complex in the lens of climate change do you think there's a little bit too much complacency the lack of reality that climate change um, positions itself for sort of northern hemisphere cities you know i um, i have mixed feelings on this on the one hand i am surprised at the complacency uh, on the other hand i'm surprised that um and kind of delighted that it has come much more to the forefront as as, as an issue I mean, to, to give you just one example of, of this, I this goes from the, the research I did many years ago to what I, I do now. You find that cities that are more resilient to climate change or whatever they're facing are usually the ones that have experienced this particular shock or stress in the past. And there is a shared memory of what happened. You know, it's, it's one thing, and you gave the boiling fog analogy, which is I think is a perfect one, but imagine, just really stretch that analogy as far as I can. Imagine that frog had consistently tried to be, you know, someone had consistently tried to boil that frog. That frog, you would hope, would learn that actually that rise in temperature was going to be a bad thing. And so uh, with that thought, then you look at um, places, and I mentioned Rotterdam already, but the Dutch cities, for example, which have always had this issue with this kind of, complicated um, relationship with nature where they've had to push back the water because so much of it is, is under um, and under the sea level. I don't think it's any coincidence that they are much more in tune with the issues of, of climate change than, than we are because they have that healthy respect and, and um, awareness of, of what nature can do, all its like beauty and, and terror as well. Um, and so, with 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 that, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm positive that some cities are, are learning. I, I think for a city like London, where actually we don't really, you know, we have the Thames barrier, we don't really get flooded, we don't, 
really see much of, of, a, of an issue in terms of climate change. I mean, I'm talking like direct um, impacts. We, we, we don't really experience it like that. We certainly will do. Um, and unfortunately, we can't build that collective memory and then expect to change. We have to be changing now. And I, and I think we are. I, I wouldn't be the person, I, I don't think any of us can really answer now whether it's, it's too little or too late. I certainly hope not. But I'm very much, you know, have a newfound um, positive attitude what with, especially what's been happening over the summer with um, the Extinction Rebellion, with... Um, with protests all around. I mean, I think even today, um, is it Stockholm or having their, their climate protests? You know, that, that momentum, I really hope that continues. Um, as someone who, in, in recent, you know, I researched uh, air pollution as well as, as pandemic diseases. And with air pollution, it's one of those things which is so difficult to see. And so it's, and, because of that, it's very difficult to communicate uh, the the issues and challenges and the health impacts of it. That's what I thought, and that's what the evidence that I came across several years ago. And yet, look at what's happening now. People are much more aware of the health impacts and how it's affecting their health and are really concerned about it. And so I'm glad that I've been, you know, my research uh, has been proven wrong and there's been this kind of <laughs> a shift in in attitudes. I really just hope that that continues, and, and people will do the same with uh, with climate change. Yeah, I think um, it's supposedly, according to the organisers, 1.4 million young people are set to strike. Uh, you know, not attend school and attend marches. Um, planned in 1400 cities uh in 110 countries so there, there is a swell and i think it's very interesting looking at the swell coming from um uh, younger groups of people who don't necessarily and i, I love that some that kind of collective memory uh, who don't have that collective memory they're very much basing an identity around it rather than uh, trying to pull from a resource or question themselves around it. I think it's um, it's a fascinating time to to kind of uh, to question these things. Now, I, I want to flip it, and there was something that you said when we talk about resilience, when we talk about adaption, when we talk about um, you know positive policies to enable uh, people to thrive. You know, do we look at resilience by things like the Thames Barrier, and from a, a primarily uh, infrastructure point of view you know is it just about energy systems and protecting that um at the conference you you discussed the work that uh, was taking place in cape town and and how they actually positioned resilience so if we think about uh, how uh, a lot of young generation now are basing their identity around this kind of future what was really fascinating was the method towards resilience in cape town uh, a really uh, resilience is seen through mental health and i was wondering if you could uh, elaborate more about uh, that please for the audience yeah, um, happy, happy to. I, I think the first thing to say is that um, the the work Cape Town are doing uh, right now is is fan fantastic. I think when they do release the strategy, and it's uh, if I've got this right, it's still in the development. So there's things I can talk about, and things um, I'll sort of be a little bit more abstract in. But the, from what I've seen so far, it is it's just such a great um, set of, of ideas and goals that they're, they're putting together, um, the, the team in Cape Town. The, the thing for me, um, when I see what they're, 
they're trying to do in terms of creating a more resilient uh, Cape Town that, that really stands out compared to, um, I guess, a lot of great work um, across our cities is that by putting the health and the mental health of citizens first and calling, you know, better, you know, improvements in mental health, uh, linking that to the resilience of, of the city, I think that's that's fantastic because actually we find that mental health is something that is a rising challenge. It's one of you know the, the stresses that's, that cities are, are facing amongst everything else, which is more sort of physical challenges like the impacts of climate change we've discussed. Um, but uh, the fear I have is that it's it's going to go under the radar. You know, mental health already is quite, I think, I, I would say that, um, you know, it needs its champions and it needs to be recognised more as a growing problem. But if you put it into the context of all other growing problems, where does it then sit? Uh, and yet with Cape Town, they've, they've put it as, you know, this, this primary pillar of, of their work and really recognise its link, it, uh, it seems to me, with um, individuals, whereas other shocks and stresses like earthquakes and flooding, etc., of course impact people. But there's something so personal about mental health that um, that really makes anything you do around mental health about people. And I, I think that's a really great way to, to think about resilience. So I, I hope in future when, when more strategies come out and we're talking about resilience, to your point earlier, we're not just going to talk about um, the environment and infrastructure, which of course we have to do, um, but we're going to be talking at that very admittedly difficult scale of, of the individual and put it all into perspective as well. Yeah, there is. I mean, we were talking before um, in the sort of dissemination of information to policymakers, infrastructure planners, uh, and, you know, large organisations in the links and the direct link between, um, you know, urban ecology, I think it is a term that's often used um and it's direct links to sort of mental health and experience and um uh, uh sarah Liko, who's a phd candidate at ucl has been working with us uh looking at the relationship between uh, urban sort of impoverished environments and the relationship to uh, the sort of the more biological side of post-traumatic stress disorder so there is the psychological impact from a situational event such as uh, you know the death of someone close to you often experienced by those uh, you know at war for example but there is a sort of more long-term chronic relationship the in developing a sort of post-traumatic stress disorder and that trauma is the you know the constant you know uh, barraging of the senses um, you know constantly being stressed and physiologically stressed from uh, air pollution poor environmental conditions mm-hmm. um, and not having that level of escape that uh, we, we actually we asked and this study that will be released uh, soon enough it shows you know unquestionable correlations between the the rate of diagnosis and that's even those who've been diagnosed let alone those who may be experiencing it sort of undiagnosed and urban environments from uh, their physical infrastructure point of view but actually getting this to policymakers in a structured way is quite a challenge i mean it's something that i think you've you've often found of kind of going how do we join up the dots and kind of demonstrate that yes a piece of infrastructure is good and it does support whether it be gdp or it does support transport but also if we did it in this way it 
might really help us from a mental perspective in kind of joining those dots. I mean, are you, when you're looking at this, are there any sort of best practice examples or gaps, for example, that you're seeing in where we can start to join the dots, any particular, um, whether it be data sets or, you know, fields of research? Gosh, no. <laughs> I wish, <laughs> it's my short answer, but I wish I did. I, I really wish that there was. I mean, I, I did mention your, um, the earlier to you, the, the playbook that, um, so if, if you want to give a shout out to, to that in a, in a second, please do, because I, I think that's, that's a good example um, when I came across it of, of making that link between, you know, the, the, the background in neuroscience and how that connects with, with how we develop and build cities. That kind of uh, link to, to, the even, uh, to the evidence um, that exists is, is fundamental to get other people um, understanding how how you know important this, this is and the connections um, that exist. I, I, th- I think me, I, I'm always um, aware or mindful that people, city authorities, have a lot on their plate, and they have often. A, it's a case of trying to prioritise things. They know there are certain challenges, though they may know the mental there are mental health um, issues and benefits and, and disbenefits with whatever new actions they are implementing in their city. It's just a case of if they don't have some kind of evidence or they're not able to compare it with other types of benefits, social, economic, then it, it will often get, get sort of bumped down the, the list of, of priorities. Um, job roles like any you know there are certain departments but you know is it the heads of planning is it the heads of environmental is it the chief financial officers within you know local uh, governments and authorities that are the ones that uh, either need support or are most um most needed to be influenced hmm you know that's a good question i um and i wouldn't wouldn't know i mean the th- People often like to, when it comes to something like this, which is, you know, pushing for more mental health awareness and, and trying to in, trying to plan for, you know, what would a city look like if we really plan for, for mental health as, as a major issue? We always like to go for the mayor or for the senior leaders. And that's great, but again, a lot of priorities are jostling uh, there for, for some exposure and, and the and it's not always going to be the case um, that you can you can make that uh, that case. And so I think sometimes it's it's looking at more local authorities or trying to understand um, which projects, actions, large pieces of infrastructure. Is, is I'll give you an example. Of, and honestly, I'm, I'm as as you've posed that question to me, I'm, I'm wondering aloud that let's say that we, we do know that the transport department has, um, you know, any projects that it's, it's enabling and, and implementing um, really does have a huge effect on mental health of, of citizens, then surely we should start there. And, and actually often what we, we do with our resilience work is, is we look across departmentally at, at solutions, so maybe the transport-led project, but we may include um, members of the health department or even other um, stakeholders, whether that's business or um, local organisations who really 
have um, a hold on what mental health means to them to try and create these coalitions, these partnerships who, are, who can kind of convene around one, one issue like mental health. Mm. Um, so, and, and I think maybe that's, that's uh, a personal point, but, but when, or like a personal perspective on this, that we're talking about mental health here and, and yes, in, in, in regards sometimes to climate change, but there, there are a number of issues that you can, you can raise as important that, you know, why haven't they thought about them? Like why aren't cities more inclusive? Why aren't cities um, considering their relationship to water more? Why aren't they considering health more? Why aren't they considering climate change? The, the list of things that need to be considered, and, and quite rightly, um, are, is so expansive that, and, and the, the point I, I come to is that not everything can be um, health first or climate change first. You, you often have to think, how can we how can we look at what's going on in the city already and try and support um, bumping up or improving its benefits um, beyond, you know, in health or in climate change. I, I think this idea that we can, we can turn to one policy or one aim for a city is, is, is not possible. No, that's fair. I, uh, it's, it's, it is that challenging question of, um, you know, are there departments, individuals that are severely lacking in information and how, how can they be better served? In some cases, it's not. In some cases, you do have to really do quite bespoke diagnostics to understand their situations and kind of find uh, where within bureaucracy needs to impact. It's, um, but it's, I think it's always healthy to ask those questions. Um, you know, the rate of change and everything at the moment, we, we can't assume that a, an answer that came around a few years ago is still relevant it's still healthy to challenge if you don't challenge and put yourself in discomfort you may not find something new um so yeah thank you for for answering that tom um l- last question i want to put to you um and i'd like you to it's not necessarily a question um because i was just listening to you uh when you were discussing uh, the work around, um, I don't think it's the work that you directly done, but around the SARS crisis, and I, it, it was it was just fascinating to hear that there is a psychological trauma left over from something like that. Let alone the kind of the physical impact that occurred at that time, um, and you know how how cities either sort of resolve around those issues or, or understand the nuances from them i just i really want to just put it towards you to uh explain that uh, situation in case study a little bit more yeah so i i, I the, the issue or uh, the event of sars was for me so interesting to, to put it into more context um the i, I mentioned sars as um an event that i, I looked at during uh, my thesis work so uh, I had two years of, of uh, masters, uh, did an MPhil, and where I was interested in the SARS pandemic in relation to Hong Kong and and its its situation as a global city, and I, I thought that was was fascinating, and and there there had to be some link there. This as we are in a globalizing world, that um, pandemics are just going to become more and more. Um, prevalence um, because we're really setting up cities to become uh, carriers and exacerbate uh, situations like this. Um, I'm luckily not yet proved right, uh, and I really hope I'm not, um, but I, I think that if you look at the situation and, and the evidence, you, you could say, well, we're certainly not trying to 
creates a, a less open world or well some of us might be but that's that's for conversation for another time, another time. Um, and and so with with SARS I, I think the thing I found fascinating is, is when a health pandemic like that meets a complicated creature like a, a city, it goes beyond just the, the um, biological health impacts of it. It, it has impacts on, uh, quite rightly, as, as you pointed out, the you know, traumatic uh, issues, the paranoia that that comes with um, with a health scare like uh, like SARS, um, the socioeconomic impacts, like um, indirectly perhaps, where street vendors in Hong Kong were because of the environmental hygiene scare, due to in part to SARS, meant that actually authorities look even more harshly on on these you know, bad hygienic, unhygienic practices um, that actually, on the other hand, make make Hong Kong what it is often, that street food, that street life is is amazing about the, the, the city. And then, and then to, you know, tourism and, and, and how uh, the city brands itself um, globally, you know, it, if it's known as the place where SARS, uh, you know, sprang up, then... For years later, even once the actual uh, pandemic is, is, has been curtailed and, and stopped, uh, it, it takes a huge amount of work, uh, diplomatic work for, for a city to, to rebrand itself and, and, and acknowledge that this happened, but try and forget and have others forget that actually this, this thing happened. So it goes beyond much more than just the medical profession on how you handle um, a huge event like that, and and actually from there, just you know, a few years later, this this is where you know my interest in resilient cities um, comes from because it's about looking at, at all manner of shocks and stresses and saying actually it has a far wider impact often that that can go yes as far as you know the mental health issues of of a population. Um, I just want to give one one more example, which is actually not mine and not one that I used in the conference. But um, one I heard from a, a it was many years ago, but a, a French uh, psychoanalyst uh, who who went to uh, the Tohoku region of Japan after the, the tsunami and and looked into the, the traumatic uh, responses to to the tsunami in a in a fishing village um, and questioned. Yes, there was you know recovery and rebuilding of, of that village, but what did it mean to be one of the survivors in that village? How could you go back to normal life? Um, and, and could you? And actually, if you couldn't, is there a better way to rebuild than just rebuild as, as usual and then back to, to what it was? Was there a better way to plan that village? Um, and I, I don't know where that, that went, but I think that line of thinking is, is, is really interesting. And again, it's, it's the right approach to, to this. Fascinating. I mean, uh, the uh, looking at the change of hygiene standards as a response to SARS in Hong Kong, you think, yes, yeah, straightforward. Of course, those, these, those things need to be improved. But um, 
many people who may be street vendors, uh, unless you're a hipster, uh, are doing it for very uh, restricted financial and economic uh, reasons. And that sudden changes in new policies and new laws and new requirements and new training, for example, can sometimes put the day-to-day livelihood of living hand-to-mouth at threat. And I think looking at the idea of uh, resilience being, you know, preparing, what are the stress risks for human life that would impact those already living at a very sort of stressful uh, day-to-day life is, um, I think it's a really powerful way to look at things. I think something we're going to see a lot more of really stress testing life from a human perspective rather than just a financial instrument that we understood was the mechanism behind uh, realizing why Lehman Brothers had to sell all of their gear in 2007 uh, and eight when um, they realized their stress test no longer worked and they had to dump everything. So hopefully we'll find it from a human perspective to protect life rather than just sell off life in that way. Uh, but Tom, I understand you are precious of time. So I want to thank you very much um, and just uh, ask you to let people know where they might be able to find some more information on what uh, what you're doing and uh, anything you'd like to, as a part as a last comment. Yeah, thanks, Josh. I mean, I, in terms of a last comment, just thank you again. It's, it's been great to, to talk through some of these ideas with you today and, and last week as well. If, if anyone is interested in, in the work of 100 Resilient Cities, um, please do uh, look up our website, which I do not have to hand right now, but you Google that and it'll, it's sure to spring up. And from there, you can just see all the work that uh, all the cities that are part of, of the network are doing. And I really encourage everyone to do so, either in their own cities, which may be members, London is one, for example, or anywhere else in the world to see all the great work that's happening. Yep. Uh, amazing. Your website domain is 100, that's 100resiliencecities.org. So uh, no faffing about there, straight to the point. <laughs> cool. Tom, thank you very much uh, for your time. Take care. Thanks, Joss. Bye. So a massive thank you to Tom for his time. Uh, Always grateful for people taking time out of their day to provide content for this podcast. If you do have any questions or want to keep up to date with the information that he he puts out and what he works on, uh, the best place is his Twitter handle, which is at Tom C. Lindsay, and that's L-I-N-D-S-A-Y. So that's his Twitter account. Obviously, 100 Resilient Cities, which is at 100 Res Cities. That's pioneered by the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, If you do have the time, please do leave a review hopefully a positive one uh, from where you heard this whether it be itunes or soundcloud it does help it does help spread the name this is a not-for-profit podcast that we're putting out to try and help spread the word about how agents and activists within the real estate within the built environment within architecture technology science urban planning research all of these factors that make up our built environment how people are trying to make better places and how if we start joining the dots we can make significant improvements so thank you very much for your time guys my name's josh if you do have any questions, just give us a shout. Say hello at thecentriclab.com. We'll do our best to get back in touch. If you have any ideas, say hello. If you have any queries, say hello. We're here. We'd love a conversation. All the best. Bye.